Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to com. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Smart People Podcast. I am Chris Stemp and alongside me I have John Rojas. Happy holiday season. As we mentioned in our last episode, we want to do something special for this week. So we're going to be bringing you guys throughout the week a best of series. So we're going to go back from the start of the show. We've been combing through our archives, digging up some of the coolest quotes, moments, speakers we've had. And today we're doing best of psychology. So we're going to be talking about decision-making, passion, how the brain works, neuroscience. We're bringing to you six different guests, a few minutes from each episode, so you can get an idea of what we talked to them about, what I personally thought was some really great stuff. Feel free to head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and you can look through all these full episodes, download them. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes as we will be doing more best ofs this week. You don't want to miss those. I think we'll be doing a Tuesday or Wednesday, perhaps a Friday. So just to make sure you don't miss out, we're going to dive right in and start with Jesse Prince, who wrote a book, Beyond Human Nature. You can check this out. Episode 58 is when we had on Jesse. And let's hear what he has to say about why humans are just plain awesome. So I think all creatures see the world from the perspective of their own species needs. 
Uh, but human beings have this special capacity to also shape, shape, change, reform, or change the world. So we're, in a way, uh, not just perceiving the world in a very species-centric way. We're also creating a world. And the fact that we live in houses and wear clothing and alter the environment makes us absolutely unique. And that desire to control and that capacity to control is also unprecedented in the animal kingdom. Here I asked Jesse basically to tell us a little more about why humans are awesome. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the really fascinating thing about human beings is that we are capable of learning. I mean, that's really what sets us apart. All of our incredible accomplishments come through incremental learning. If you think about the, the structures we build, the sciences we, we have, they all come from step-by-step improvements in what we know and how we understand and I think if we were driven by our biology, we'd be where the animals are. We'd be stuck with some fixed program that totally delimits what we're capable of doing. But instead, we have a biology that says we can go bio- beyond biology. We have a biology that says this is our starting place, but we can acquire knowledge, share and disseminate information that allows us to go beyond the biological givens and create this thing called culture. You know, I mentioned clothing before, and I think just to pause and meditate on the miracle of clothing, like it's just totally spectacular that all of us right now are sitting wearing some kind of outfit. And, you know, other creatures don't do that. They walk around naked. And it's not just that they're hairier than we are. It's that they couldn't do it. They couldn't come up with this idea of, oh, let's conquer the elements. Let's protect our bodies. And the fact that human beings can do it and do that differently in every corner of the world and do it in a way that's self-expressive, and do it in a way that's constantly changing, is, I think, I mean, we, it's, we think fashion is superficial, but it's actually a deep insight into just how spectacular we are. And I think that feature that makes us most spectacular is our capacity for, for change, for reinvention, for growth, for learning, and for creativity. The other thing is, in your book, Gut Reactions, I love it because talking about emotion in my opinion, it brings all this together, right? Emotion is something we all know, but we can't quite put our finger on. We don't know what it is, where it comes from. And what you say is emotions are perceptions of changes in the body. I love it. I love the quote because as a human, you experience emotions that literally change your life, change the way you go about your daily business. And what you posit is that emotions are just the way you perceive things. They're not an actual, they, they can be different through people. So I was hoping you could kind of talk to us about the research you've done behind emotions and how you define them. I, I think it's helpful to start by imagining a world without emotions. Like imagine you just never felt any emotions at all and ask yourself, would you still have any interest in food? Would you still have any interest in sex? Would you find anything beautiful or attractive? Would you care what your home looked like, what you were wearing, what your you know, romantic partner looked like? Would you care about romance? Would you bother turning on the TV? And I think it's obvious on a moment's reflection that without emotion, we live in a world without value. We live in a world where nothing is attractive, appealing. And of course, the converse is also true. Nothing is enraging, repellent, disgusting. A world without emotion is a world where we're not motivated to care one way or the other about anything that we come into contact with. That literally made the hair stand up on my arms. That I've never looked at emotion like that. Would you say they're the driving force then behind everything? I think emotions are the driving force 
behind everything we care about. To care about something is to have an emotion about it. And I think that's why the body is so important for emotion. So imagine that you're standing in front of this object. Maybe it's a cold beer. Maybe it's a you know beautiful hamburger or something like that. And you know, if you had no emotions, this is this is an object of total indifference. It could be a blade of grass. You don't care at all. But if it's something you like, what happens is your body tells you you like it. Your body wants to approach it. You feel this almost force within you saying, I want to grab that thing. I want to take hold of it. I want to consume it. And I think that this notion that we use our bodies as information, that we feel our bodies repelled by things or compelled by things, is so important to understanding why we care about anything at all. That's the foundation of what it is to have morality. It's the foundation of what it is to have preferences, what it is to have romance, what it is to you know, want to eat as opposed to uh, being a kind of paramecium that just knocks up against food sources and consumes things indifferently. All right. So we want to start off there just to remind everybody how amazing the human machine is and all that our brain can do. But what I wanted to transition to was probably a thing that we talk about the most on this show. We really wanted to get to the heart of this, and that's passion and how to live an exceptional life. And perhaps nobody summed up passion better than Dr. Srini Pillay in episode 51. What have you found in your research motivates people to be more productive, to do the things they want to do, to go that extra mile, that kind of thing? Well, in general, there are two kinds of motivation. There's extrinsic motivation, where people are motivated by being able to earn more money, or um, you know, being able to maybe some people actually want to stay away from home, so they stay out later work. I mean, there are all sorts of ex extrinsic motivations that people have, and then there's intrinsic motivation, which I think most people yearn for. And I think intrinsic motivation is a drive that comes from a connection with yourself um, and the permission to be yourself. And what I find is that uh, one of when people begin to understand that motivation and an achievement is not about not making mistakes but really about coming to accept those. They're able to move more freely and then enjoy that movement uh, even more. So my, one, of the, one of my mantras when I speak to people is, you know, I'll say to someone, um, would you like to live an exceptional life? And they'll say back to me, sure, that's exactly what I'd like. And I'll say then, how come every time you talk about your life, you talk about it in terms of probability? By definition, if it's exceptional, it means it's a low probability life which means that it has to be highly unlikely. So if you use an argument to me and say, well, you know, it's, it's highly unlikely this is going to go anywhere, or it's highly unlikely I'm going to make a lot of money this way, and if as a result of that you feel not motivated, part of what you need to ask yourself is, well, if it's highly unlikely, then it has a greater chance of being exceptional, because for it to be exceptional, it can't be likely. So I think by helping people reframe their lives and by helping them connect with themselves, uh, they're, they're actually able to, motiv to, to motivate themselves much more. Uh, you know, there are actual mechanisms that we can use that help the brain harness um, some of the capacities that we have to, to motivate ourselves, ways that we can connect with our passion. And I can go into some of those things with you if you'd like. But in essence, um, in summary, your, with regard to your question, there are two kinds of motivation, extrinsic and intrinsic. You can set external rewards for yourself or you can give yourself an internal permission through self-forgiveness and through helping yourself understand that probability is not the most effective guide for an uh, exceptional life. 
So there are two kinds of passion that the research generally reveals. One is called harmonious passion and the other is obsessive passion. Now, sometimes people confuse the two. People feel that if they just drive at something and they're working all the time at it and they're you know, really putting in all those hours, that somehow that will get them to a place of passion. And that can steady their minds and it can help them feel driven for a while. But what the research shows is that obsessive passion is not extremely good for your health and it can actually deter you uh, from working. Whereas harmonious passion is the kind of passion where you don't feel like you have to do something in order to get something uh, achieved at the end of the line. It's actually some kind of intrinsic in the moment kind of feeling that feels like it gels with your life. Now, one of the questions is, well, how can you achieve a state of harmonious passion rather than obsessive passion? And I think most people who, um, who basically trip out to their work will say to you, well, I, you know, I feel really lost in it and I love it. And, and that's how, and you know, when I get lost in the work, it feels really great, but it needs a lot of discipline. Now, there's a recent body of research that's particularly interesting, and there are more than 100 studies on this idea of self-regulation. So, you know, a lot of times people will say, you've got to regulate yourself, you've got to get yourself in check, you've got to be disciplined. Well, what the studies show is that for a large number of people, if you are involved in self-regulation, meaning you're trying to control yourself for a prolonged period of time, and then you do some kind of cognitive test to test your thinking ability, oftentimes those who have been regulating more than the other group, uh, perform much more poorly on the tests afterwards. And that's because the self-regulating part of the brain becomes exhausted. And so the ability to think actually diminishes. So I think one of the keys about living a life of harmonious passion is to be able to alternate self-regulation with relaxation, to give yourself a sense of permission uh, about various things in order to explore things and to recognize that in order to really feel passion, part of what you've got to do is feel the permission to explore. And the permission to explore technically means that you do not know where you are going. Now, we live in a life now which is full of knowledge. People have all sorts of directions. You know, even this podcast that we're doing is about, well, how would you recommend people do things? I don't see the value of what I have to teach as necessarily being within the content of what I have to teach. What I hope people get from this energy that I'm using to communicate is that it's about finding your passion is really about giving yourself permission to discover the unknown. It's not necessarily doing what someone else did. You know, I, I once had a, a pretty famous entrepreneur and a business executive who said to me, when I stand in front of a business audience and I talk about innovation, I know exactly who's, who has a likelihood of being innovative and who doesn't. The person who's copiously taking notes in order to do exactly what I did is probably the person who will not be innovative. The person who's reflecting on what I'm saying and having their own conversation about it in their heads, the person who's converting it into something that they own, that person is much more likely to be passionate. So in summary, in relation to passion, I would say that to tap into harmonious passion, it's important to realize that you need to learn how to walk in darkness because harmonious passion correlates with discovery and technically in order to discover something, it has to not be known. And the second thing I would say about that is that alternating self-regulation with a whole lot of self-expression and sometimes even overstepping the bounds to the extent that you can pull yourself back without much regret. I think that learning to play that game of life and learning to accept that that's part of how we are is, is especially helpful. 
you know, one of the things that I've learned through these 17 years of brain imaging research is a pretty humble lesson. You know, I've learned that we're endowed with an amazing thinking brain, which is extremely large compared to other animals, and it's pretty powerful. But we also have an extremely powerful emotional brain. And unfortunately for us, to a certain extent, these two parts of our, of our brains are often uh, at odds with each other. So you have this passionate, impulsive uh, part of yourself that just wants to let loose and wants to completely explore something and take risks. And there's another part of your brain that's a thinking brain that wants to keep you in check. And I think that a lot of people try to become perfect at what they do, but perfection is really a formula for disaster when it comes to passion. And it needs to be distinguished from excellence because perfection is really unrealistic. When you tell the brain, I need to be perfectionistic, it's like telling the brain to go to Mars without any vehicle. It sort of, it just feels absurd. Whereas if you strive for excellence, anybody who is an expert at what they've done will tell you that excellence comes not from not falling, but from knowing how to get up after you fall. Wasn't that just some killer insight from Srini? All right, let's turn it over now to Katherine Schultz. She is the author of the book, Being Wrong. And we spoke with her in episode 13. And I really wanted to just throw this one in here because it's a great talk about learning from mistakes and living in that world of trial and error. What do you think causes us to be incorrect? Well, you know, fundamentally, we, we are a deeply fallible species. We have these amazing, amazing human minds. They're very, very good at a lot of things, but they're also tasked with a really complicated job, which is to make sense of the world around us. And the world around us turns out to be a confusing place. You know, it is a noisy information environment. There, there's a lot of uh, different kinds of evidence that we take in all the time on a daily basis from a lot of different sources. And then there's a lot of evidence that we never do see that's occluded from us, either because of you know our own particular emotional setup or the community we live in, or just because there's information that human beings can't detect in the world around us. And given that, of course, we're going to get stuff wrong. You know, we we are simultaneously driven to explain the whole world. You know, we, we fundamentally love to invent theories and, and, and stories to account for the world around us. And we don't have direct, complete, unmediated access to it. So there's a lot of wiggle room for error in there. It's interesting because people have always claimed that you learn the most from your mistakes. And I kind of believe that that was just a way of trying to make me feel better after I made a big mistake. Do you agree with that statement? Do you think that that's how we learn? I absolutely think that error can be a, a really wonderful and important learning tool. But the thing is, for that to work, you have to actually be willing to sit with the error. You have to be willing to think about it a little bit. I mean, if you make a mistake and your impulse is to deny it or ignore it or run away from it or blame it on someone else, you probably aren't really going to extract a lesson from that. On the other hand, if you really can kind of face the mistake, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, what's happening when something goes wrong? You, you've had this belief about the world and it suddenly collapses out from under you. And what you have to do in that moment is reevaluate 
the world or, or that piece of it that you were wrong about. So it's this real opportunity to suddenly see everything around you in a new light and you have to put together the picture in a new and different way. And to be honest, we don't get that kind of opportunity that often in adult life. But our mistakes are that rare moment when suddenly we get a chance to actually have a really you know, new, fresh outlook on our environment. All right, let's keep the fun going here. We're going to bring you back to episode 41 when we speak with David McRaney. David wrote the book, You Are Not So Smart. And you actually got to go back, listen to the whole interview. We talk about a lot of really interesting things that go on in the human mind, but I'll give you a highlight here. Can you describe priming? And then do you think things like making your bed do lead to a more productive day? And what is the science behind this? Well, priming is one of the creepiest things that science has, has revealed. Um, and it, it, the easiest way to think of it is we, if you go to work in flip-flops and shorts versus going to work in a, in a nice fitted suit with a, with a tie, um, does it affect your behavior? Do you become more professional when you wear professional clothes or do you wear professional clothes you know, to put out a sense of professionalism? The science says that um, priming is always affecting us, uh, maybe just a little bit here and there, but enough over time to really push our behaviors, really push our decisions to change the way we see the world. The study I, that cracks me up in, in the, that I have in the book is they would have people, they would do some, they'd do a different study. And then as a reward, they'd be like, okay, here's some refreshments while we tally up the results. And they would give you a, a crumbly, crumbly cookie. And um, what they were really doing is the, the scientists behind the mirror watching this person eat the crumbly cookie. And the, as the table um, got peppered with crumbs, uh, they wanted to see how often would people clean up their mess. And they found that if there was a faint scent of cleaning um, uh, fluid in the room, a faint scent of some sort of cleaning product, people were much more likely to clean up their crumbs. They were primed by that smell to think, oh, yes, this is a clean place. Maybe I should keep it clean. In another study, they had people, part of the study, they had to remember a sin from their past, remember something from their past they were ashamed of, something they uh, wished they could go back and change, something they regretted. And uh, they said, in the study, they had to give people an opportunity to wash their hands before moving on to the next part of the study. Some people washed, some people did it. And at the end of the study, they said, would you um, do a, a favor for the researcher? No more. You're not going to get any extra money or any extra points, but you, uh, this would be a great favor to us. You just have to do another study with us. So the people who did not wash their hands, they were um, like 75% more likely to say yes than the people who did wash their hands. And the idea of the researchers saying they had subconsciously, they didn't prime to think that they had cleaned away their sins and didn't need to do the favor to feel like they were um, good people to get rid of that nasty thought they got from the sin from their past. And other studies, and this has been in other books, and I, and I, I mentioned it briefly in mine, um, people, when people have to do word puzzles, and they'll say, uh, the study I talk about most, they do word puzzles that are related to, um, that have words in the word bank, like briefcase, fountain pen, stuff like that, uh, conference table. And then they have those people perform a negotiating task. The people who got neutral objects, like uh, whale and backpack, they would tend to be very fair in their negotiation. But the people who had uh, done word puzzles that had briefcases and fountain pens in them, they tended to be very aggressive and uh, tried to maximize their profit. And uh, because they had been primed, you know, every every object, every everything around you, every thought, every object, every uh, entertain, piece of entertainment, it's going to cause this cascade of associations throughout your brain. And that your brain, your brain sort of, um, it's like, flexing its muscles, getting ready to run, it already has a little bit 
of the information there ready to go, and, it's, and you think more quickly in the direction that you've already been primed to think. And um, we don't realize it. And this stuff actually works much better when we're unconsciously primed, but it's always uh, pushing us around and changing our behaviors. Is it a better idea to go with your gut or your intuition when it comes to making decisions? Are, are we more easily deceived when we move the thought process to our conscious mind? You know, I talk, I, I try not to, to step on um, uh, Jonah Lair's toes too much in the book because uh, he, he wrote the greatest book on this topic that I've read, and that is uh, How We Decide. And, and he talks a lot about how, um, you know, the unconscious mind, is, the emotional mind, has had a lot longer time to evolve than the um, the the rational mind, and 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 so and then you also have people like Malcolm Gladwell who um, who say that you know you should really really trust your gut reactions. But I think that the the science is not 100% in favor of that because there are many times when the when your gut reaction is 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 really good uh, and it's something you can trust. But it's usually after you've done a lot of research or you have a lot of experience in what it is that you are um, you're, you're contemplating. Uh, when you're a complete um, noob about something, when you're completely uh, novice in the situation, your gut reaction is uh, it going to be based off of something else, and it's, it could be priming. It could be um, any number of the biases that I talk about in the book. It could be based off of faulty information or, or false premises. So you have to be careful with when trusting your gut 100%, especially in a very novel situation. Now, you know, if... Um, if somebody throws a snake in your lap and you go with your gut and you say, yeah, and you throw, you throw it away, uh, that's good. That, that's all those, uh, all the things I write about serving you well. But if you, um, uh, this is, for instance, um, Stephen Levitt uh, in Freakonomics talks about how people aren't very good at judging um, the statistical danger of something like a gun versus a swimming pool because we might think that a gun is more dangerous, but statistically you're, a child is much more likely to be harmed by a swimming pool than a gun in a home that has both. So, um, yes, going your, with your gut can be a good thing, and but it also could be really faulty. and it, It's situational and it's nuanced. All right. Here's another great one for you. In episode 83, we spoke with Venkatesh Rao. The interview was absolutely enthralling. It's a way of talking about decision-making by looking at robotics and technology. Really cool stuff. I would go check it out. Here's a clip from it. Most people, when they're introduced to the formal study of decision-making, they kind of think in terms of like uh, single decisions, like which college should I attend or which house should I buy or is this like a good bargain or a bad bargain? So they think of decision-making as like almost individual instances of problem solving where somebody hands you like the data that um, is relevant to a decision. You think about it, you make a decision and you move on. It's kind of a very static view of decision making. And most people, when you ask them, what do you, uh, what do you understand by the term decision making? That's the kind of image that'll get conjured up in their head. But if you look at how you actually live life, it's much more dynamic than that. Like, um, I prefer not to use decisions like, you know, picking college as the uh, prototypical decisions to study. I prefer something like driving. And this is kind of a really continuous real-time decision-making process where if you actually sit and count like some people have done, you realize that you're making something like 1,400 decisions a minute. And this is in a continuous stream. And it's happening in a multiple-layered kind of way where input is streaming through your eyes and ears and your subconscious brain functions are and muscle memory are kind of dealing with 80% of it in uh, sort of triage. 
sometimes you kind of spot an exception that bubbles up into conscious awareness, like, you know, uh, an old lady's crossing the street and suddenly you slam the brakes, right? How does that happen? It's like out of that smoothly flowing stream, which is mostly subconscious, one event comes up and interrupts your attention. So this is, if you actually think about how, what kinds of decisions humans make, this kind of continuous stream decision-making is actually 99% of it. Whereas the kind of pen and paper, write down the data process and then come to a conclusion, that type of decision is like actually extremely rare. So for me, the idea for the book was, let's actually focus on the kind of decision-making that constitutes the bulk of the decisions we actually make, which is the continuous and stream type. And the more I thought about that, I realized the more the quality and sort of texture of the decision-making is really more like music or um, improv jamming and jazz. It's like you're aware of the rhythms going on, you're aware of your emotions, you're aware of your energy levels, and you control those kind of high-level variables, rhythms, energy, emotions, and using that, you kind of modulate your lower-level decision-making, right? That's really how a lot of decision-making happens. So when you're really upset and you're driving, you might drive more aggressively, whereas if you're feeling calm and collected, you might drive more safely. So that was the kind of uh, approach I wanted to take. So the entire book is about uh, approaching decision-making through this uh, idea of rhythms, energy, and emotion. One of the things that I read in your book is you said, work is simply whatever we must do to get from one decision to the next. And mm -hmm. and I that changed the way I thought about what I do on a daily basis. I mean, it is, okay, do I do this or that, and then you choose this, and then now there's another set of decisions to just get to the next spot. And yep. defining it as a decision-making process is something I never considered. And this is a relatively new way of thinking about this, and I didn't invent it, but it's sort of emerged in the zeitgeist over the last 20 or 30 years. And the reason it's happened that way is that people have gradually re recognized in like a variety of academic disciplines as well as practical domains that work is really about transforming information and decisions are about acting on information. So you cannot make decisions if there's no new information. So uh, that's why you have so many like pointless meetings in <laughs> a really old school industrial organizations where there's like a weekly communication meeting. Everybody shows up and talks about the same old things, talks around in circles, nothing new happens. That's because they don't have this sort of um, process discipline of uh, keeping track of what's new. So unless there's new stuff to think about, chances are you won't actually reach any new conclusions. So it's like information is what drives processes forward. And each time you develop a new set of information, certain decisions are forced, certain options are opened up, certain options are closed off. So that's why as information is generated, decisions are automatically triggered. And work, especially information work, really is about jumping from information set to information set. And you can think about it as you do some work and you stop and, or, or rather you take decisions whenever there's enough new information that uh, there's too many options that have sprouted up or closed down, right? So it's, it's almost the rate of information flow that drives the rate of decision making. All right, we're going to round out this best of series with a few minutes from one of my favorite episodes thus far. We talk with Barry Schwartz. Barry's the author of a book called The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. He also has a fantastic TED Talk. He just really knows his stuff. And this, this is cool stuff. We talk about maximizers versus satisficers, 
how to help you in that sea of decisions, whether it be shopping on Amazon or what job you want. Really good stuff that you can put to use. Sure. So the the critical distinction is that if you're a maximizer, then only the best will do. You want the best cell phone, the best cell phone plan, the best place to go on vacation, the best job, the best house, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what it's nice to have very high standards, but the problem that it creates for people, especially in the modern world, is that when there are so many options, finding the best is a total nightmare. You can't look at all the options, and so eventually you, you either you don't pick at all or you pick something, but you're convinced that if you'd looked longer, you'd have done better. A satisficer, in contrast, is looking for a good enough option, a good enough phone, phone plan, vacation, job, and so on. And you can have high standards, but you don't need the best. And the, the benefit of that is that you don't need to look at every option. You just look at options until you find one that meets your standards, whatever they are, and you choose it. So it is less stressful to choose. It's less uh, defeating to choose. And what we find is that people who are uh, who we can identify as satisficers actually are more optimistic, happier about their lives, happier about themselves. They seem generally in much better psychological shape than people who are out for the best. I'm sorry you're in the latter category. Uh, me too. I, I just <laughs> is there something that lends itself to making you more of a maximizer? I mean, I kind of was always raised on the idea that, you know, the world is your oyster and you can do anything you want. And sometimes I wonder if that's kind of bad advice. Well, I think it is bad advice. Uh, and uh, parents do it, of course, only with the best interests of their kids in mind. And people who teach at institutions like the one I teach at, you know, teaching extremely talented, hardworking students, continue. We tell students, you can do everything. You can do whatever you want to do. We'll make it easy for you. And at some point, the world intervenes and says, no, you can't do everything. You can only do some things, and you've got to pick a door to walk through, and you hear all these other doors slamming shut. And it's, uh, it's really a terrifying prospect. Um, so I don't think we do people a favor by giving them the sense that everything is possible, but we don't know where this comes from. Uh, huh. I mean, there's simply no research on how this sort of standards of decision-making develop in kids. Yeah, because it's natural the... to assume that somehow you, you know, you get it from your parents, but there are plenty of people where, you know, like one sibling will be a total satisficer and another one will be a total maximizer and they have the same parents and you just walk away scratching your head and wonder where the hell did that come from? Right. Wow. That's, that's pretty interesting. And I, I wanted to step along those lines too and just, and ask you, you know, one of the things that you say for making good decisions is to identify your goal or goals. And do you think that people either have too broad of goals or, a, a specific goal in mind, especially for the, the maximizers, what do you tend to see in terms of, of their goals? Well, I think what most people do is they will identify one or two things they care about. I mean, thinking about, think about buying a car. Uh, let's say you care about fuel efficiency and you care about reliability. Those, those are the things that matter most to you. The other stuff, you don't know what you think. 
So what you'll do is you'll say, okay, I want a high mileage car, uh, I mean a, a fuel efficient car that doesn't break down. And I'll, uh, I'll go and look at cars like that and let what's available in the marketplace tell me how I feel about other things. You know, like the nature of the upholstery, the styling, the sound system, and so on. So what happens, of course, is that you go out into the marketplace and you discover that there are 10, 50, 100 cars that are fuel efficient and reliable. And now you're going to let the marketplace tell, help you figure out what else you care about. And that's when people get themselves into trouble. So the advice I give people is, you know, this sort of joke, don't just do something, sit there. The first thing you should do when you're making a decision is sit down and ask yourself what matters. And if you can make a list, the more detailed, the better, uh, the more easily you'll be able to find something that meets your that meets your goals. Most of us don't do that. It's hard to do. We're kind of lazy and we figure I don't know what I want, but I'll know it when I see it. And again, in the world we live in, seeing it is just going to make you more confused, not more certain about what it is you want. Right. So, yes, I think people are not good at formulating goals in a detailed enough way that they, they'll actually help when the time comes to uh, make a decision. Well, everyone, that's our show. That's our first of the best of series. Again, check us out, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Send us an email. Let us know what you think. Or please leave a review on iTunes. It can be your Christmas present to us. You have no idea how long it took to edit this episode, but I really, really hope you enjoyed it. Tune in for another awesome one this week, probably the best of business, but not sure. We have a couple things we're thinking about. So anyways, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.